You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday for worship at 8.30 or 10.45. Find out more at asburybosier.org. Good morning. I, uh, I just am recovering from COVID, and so there's a small chance that my voice sounds uh, deeper and raspier and sexier this morning. Um, <clears throat> I, th- I think there's more, more likely a chance that it sounds like I'm going through puberty. Uh, so I'm not sure which one it'll be, but bear with me. Uh, a, f- a few years ago, we had a plumbing problem in, in our house. We were in a house that's about 100 years old, and the bathroom sink was starting to drain more slowly. And eventually it just stopped draining at all. And I'm a huge procrastinator. Like, I hate calling people to fix things. It just takes forever. So for a while, I tried these just different hacks to try to fix the problem. I I started off with the baking soda and vinegar thing, you know, like the Science Project volcano deal. Uh, I wanted to create the volcano in the bathroom sink, and that worked for a bit. And then I I went and got a $5 plastic snake from Home Depot that you stick down and try to get the goop up. And then that worked a little bit, and then it stopped working, and so I got the fancier snake. Uh, like, the, like the $30 one that's like metal and did that and that helped it a little bit but still a little bit later it stopped working. I eventually went underneath the sink and started pulling the, those pipes out and cleaning them out uh, and that worked for like a, you know, a week or two and then I got to the point where I was getting like plastic cups and just scooping the water out <laughs> and throwing into the bathtub uh, but that's not sustainable with a family of six and I got to a point where none of my hacks worked so I called the plumber, and he fixed it and figured it out in like 30 seconds, okay? He, he came, and he's like, hey, it doesn't matter what you do to the sink because the issue is with the pipes underneath the house in the basement. There's these big metal pipes that have been part of the house for 100 years, and just over time, those things fill up, clog up, whatever. They stop functioning, and so in order to fix your drainage problem, we need to remove these pipes or we need to bypass these pipes in order to get proper drainage. And it took him about half a day to fix it. It was done. It was great. And I remember when I was sitting there with him, and as he was kind of fixing it, I was bugging him. And I wanted to kind of impress him. I was like, hey, have you heard of the bacon soda vinegar trick? <laughs> that might fix most of your problems. It might make your cleanups, like, really quick. And I went through the list, and he, you know, he wasn't impressed. Uh, but he said, look, it, it doesn't matter what you do to the sink. The issue is with the pipes underneath. And a few weeks later, I was thinking about that story, and, and I realized it's actually a great metaphor for life, that problems kind of happen. We, we create our own problems in our lives, in our relationships, our vocations, our careers, whatever. We create these problems that keep popping up, and we attempt small hacks that buy us a little bit of time. They might cure the problem for a few weeks, a few months, a few years, but the problems pop back up. And so we up the ante, we try different hacks, but eventually all of us get to a point, to a point in our lives where the hacks just aren't cutting it. And I can hear the voice of the plumber saying to us, it doesn't matter what you do to the sink because the issue is what's going on underneath. There's a deeper issue going on here. And, And Paul says this in Romans chapter 12. He says, if you want real transformation, if you want to really change your life, do it by the renewing of your mind. It's not just a behavior hack. It's actually a deeper, get to the root cause of the problems. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now in the fourth century, there was a desert father named Evagrius Ponticus. 
And that kind of sounds like a Sith Lord. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of a crazy name. But he was a fourth century desert father. And in, in, in that time, there were desert fathers and mothers. They were basically these spiritual sages that would hide out on the, the outskirts of society. And people would come from all over the world to hear from them, to get counsel, and to get wisdom. And think of them as like an Obi-Wan Kenobi hiding in the cave of Tatooine or a Yoda hiding in the wilderness of Dagobah and Skywalker's coming to them for training to learn and to grow. And so Evagrius Ponticus was the fourth century Obi-Wan Kenobi, okay? Uh, but before he was a desert father, he was a young up-and-comer in Constantinople, which at that time was the capital of the empire in the center of cultural Christianity. Christianity was becoming a big deal, and that was the place you went to if you wanted to become a big deal in that career path. So Evagrius was a young up-and-comer. He was very intelligent, and, and for some reason, when you look at the history books, it always brought out that he, he cared a lot about the clothing that he wore. So he was sharp-minded, sharp-tongued, but he's also sharp-dressed. And if, you want, if it helps give you a visual, it's kind of like a fourth-century version of Matt Rawl. Uh, he was a young up-and-comer, in Constantinople. He was growing in power. He was growing in, in, in influence in popularity, but he also was growing in pride. Not you, Matt, Evagrius. Okay. <laughs> he kept growing in pride and, and issues began to pop up. And, and, and at one point in his time in Constantinople, he got to, very close to having an affair with a government official's wife. And that situation, that relationship really freaked him out. And so Evagrius ran and fled to Jerusalem, and he joined like a monastery in Jerusalem, a Christian think tank. But a few years went by, and he began to grow in influence and power and popularity in Jerusalem. And he began to see these same problems popping up, that his pride was getting him in trouble. And so he fled again, and this time he fled to the deserts of Egypt, where he studied with other desert fathers and eventually became one himself. And as he was reflecting about his life while he was in the desert, he came upon this, this conclusion— you can't outrun yourself. No matter where you go, you're bringing yourself with you. And if you avoid your problems, you avoid your issues, wherever you go, you're going to bring those with you. And that could be in relationships, that could be in jobs, that could be in overall health. Like wherever you go, you're going to bring your stuff with you because you can't outrun yourself. And Evagrius began to develop this system of what he called the great temptations. And over time, over the decades, over centuries of church history, this list of the great temptations that he developed became known as the seven deadly sins. We've heard of them as the seven deadly sins. Now, you may have heard of that through the, the Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman movie back in the day. It's really dark. Don't watch it. Um, but this is a framework of spiritual formation that's been used for centuries to help us grow in, in self-awareness. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll, we will look at a couple of those deadly sins. I think we'll look at pride and envy. And maybe throughout the years, I get individual sermons. Maybe I'll come back and throw another one in there. But this morning, I want us to just camp out on the idea that you can't outrun yourself. No matter where you go, you're bringing your stuff with you. So what does it look like to actually bring about lasting change? One of the big words for change in the New Testament is the word repent, repentance. And, and growing up uh, around here and growing up in, as, a, as a Southern Baptist, the word repent always came with a tone of anger I feel like the threat of hell was ever present or the threat of judgment and like the end times repent for the end is near. And repentance really just meant in that context, stop doing what you're doing, idiot. <laughs> stop doing that. It was behavior modification. Stop doing sin. Stop sinning. Stop doing these things that hurt, which isn't overall bad advice, but it's not really effective long term. 
If you ever had kids, you realize stop doing that. It doesn't really work much longer than 30 seconds. I don't even know. Anyway, that's a whole sermon. Okay. So repentance, growing up for me, always meant stop doing that. But and when you look at the, the word repentance in, in the New Testament, it's something much different than that. It's the, the word metanoia. Meta meaning mind and noia meaning new or, or refreshment. It means to have a new mind, to look at things from a different perspective, uh, to, to be renewed by the, tra- uh, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, as Paul would say, metanoia. And there were times when, when Jesus was asked, hey, when is the kingdom of God coming? You're the Messiah, you're the big deal, the crowds are following you, nothing seems to have changed. Jesus, when is the kingdom coming? And Jesus would respond, repent for the kingdom of God is here. Now, when we think of that, we think he's saying, hey, stop doing what you're doing and you'll see the kingdom. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, if you change the way you see the world, if you change your perspective, if you look at things from a different angle, you'll realize that the kingdom of God is already all around us. God's God's presence is present around us. If you change your perspective. The behavior modification I kind of grew up with in, in, in my church tradition, it kind of felt like whack-a-mole. Like if you go to Chuck E. Cheese and you get the hammer and the thing pops up and, and you smash it, but as soon as you smash it, something pops up over here and it keeps going back. And, and it's a whole, whole like game of whacking the thing as it pops up, trying to, to change the behavior, but it doesn't really work like that. It's not a long-term solution to, to health and growth. In fact, the, the writer of Proverbs says this, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to its folly. It's the whack-a-mole. As a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. And I don't know if you guys ever had a dog, but they do that. And it's freaking disgusting, okay? <laughs> like, it's really gross. They go back, it's just a whole thing. I'm not going to go into details, okay? But they do that. But as I've gotten older, I've, like, identified more and more with that dog. Like, I keep going back and making the same stupid mistakes, having the same arguments, the same shortcomings, the same obstacles pop up. Because behavior management is like playing whack-a-mole. Paul, in one of the most honest passages in Scripture, says it like this. The things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Why? What a wretched person am I? There's the things I want to do, the good stuff, I don't do that. And the things that I don't want to do, that I want to avoid, that I want to take out of my life, I keep running to that. And it's really frustrating. That's, that's my paraphrase. Repentance isn't just about behavior modification. It's about renewing your mind and seeing things from a different perspective. So how do we do that? How do we pursue a life of repentance and a posture of repentance, a posture of continually renewing and, and, and seeking out new ways to exist and be? Uh, I want to mention a few things here. First off, I would say we need to examine our beliefs. We need to examine not just our theological beliefs or our doctrinal beliefs, but just what do we think about the world? What do we think about ourselves and our, in relation to the world? What do we think about other people and how they relate to us? We need to examine our beliefs. One thing I've learned as a parent is that anytime my kids do something that I think is insane, it always makes perfect sense to them. So like one of my kids rips out another kid's hair. I'm like, what are you doing? Why would you rip your sister's hair out? Well, she threw my stuffed animal across the room. Duh. And I'm like, what are you talking? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. But you're saying that with so much confidence. Like you're... What looks like crazy to me makes perfect sense to you. And when we're in a relationship with people and they just do stuff that just, like, why would you do that? Why would you be so destructive, so selfish, so crazy? I guarantee you, it makes sense to them. And there's people asking the same question about you. 
Why is this person, why do you keep doing this, this, this? It makes complete sense because we can justify it in our own heads. So we need to examine our beliefs that kind of justify our behavior. Proverbs says it like this, that as a man thinks, so he is. We act in accordance to the way that the world occurs to us. And some of us have, have so much brokenness or such a weird background or whatever it might be. Maybe we may have addictions that have altered our mind, whatever it might be. But the way that we behave makes perfect sense to us. You might be in a relationship with someone that's acting and behaving in ways that just completely blow your mind. Trust me, it makes sense to them. And if we wanted to look at long-term behavioral change, we have to examine these internal beliefs about God, about the world, about ourselves. Um, that kind of fuel how we function. There's a book by a theologian named uh, A.W. Tozer is the author. He's the theologian. He wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy. And it's kind of a Christian classic in some circles, The Knowledge of the Holy. And one of his first statements in the first chapters of the book, he says, what we think about God, or what we think about when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, at first I thought that was a really pretentious thing to say, and he was just kind of saying it to say how important this book was. <laughs> like, it's, what I'm talking about is the most important thing in the world. Okay, but I already bought the book. Calm down. <laughs> I thought about that. And then uh, from the perspective I was at when I first read the book, I thought, oh, what this means is I need to believe the right doctrinal statements about God in order to get into heaven, because that was kind of the framework I was given. Believe these right things, you're in. If you don't, you're out. So oh, it's very important that I believe these right things about God because that's how I get into heaven. Um, that's how, kind of my earlier years, uh, I would interpret that quote. But as I've gotten older, I, I view this quote a little bit differently, and I think a little more holistically. So the quote, again, is, what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And what I think that means now is how you view God and how you view how God views you shapes and determines how you view yourself. And how you view yourself is how you view other people. And how you view yourself is how you treat yourself. And how you view other people is how you treat them. So the fundamental belief and how you view God as the creator and the order of the universe really lays out the foundation for the rest of your life. And if you grew up in a faith context that was full of toxic shame and just said you're despicable and everyone else is despicable, it leads to a life that's driven by shame and fear and scarcity and narrow-mindedness. So if that's your view of God, it, it can't help but to bleed out into how you treat yourself and how you treat other people. So we need to examine the core beliefs of, of, of what we, how we view the world. What do we think about God? What do we think God thinks about us? Because that drives a lot of our behavior. Examine your beliefs. The second thing I would say as far as what's a way to grow into a posture of repentance is to expand your relationships. I think every one of us is hardwired. We're desperate for connection. We're desperate to belong. We're desperate to have a sense of purpose. And we latch on to belonging wherever we can. And sometimes that belonging leads us to, to compromise or sacrifice or do things that are not healthy for us in order to stay in that community. It could be a family context, it could be friends, it could be a faith community, whatever, a job place. Like, we need to examine how our relationships are shaping and, and, and crafting our behavior. Tim Ferriss, he's a podcaster and author, he's, he says, you are the sum average of your five closest friends. So if you think about that, who, who are the people that are closest to me in my life? 
And if I'm the culmination or the combination of their character and their values and their level of health, what does that say about me? How are the people that I'm closest to shaping the way that I see the world and the way that I live? I don't know if you've ever been in, in, in a family dynamic or a friend dynamic where you're trying to change, but you've already created a certain way of existing in that family system or that friend system or that work system, and you're trying to change, there is a lot of resistance. Because you've already shown up for weeks or years in a certain way that you've, you've already created and carved out your certain role, and as you try to pull out of that, they want to kind of yank you back into it. Now, the flip side is true, too. You could be in a really healthy family. You could be in a really healthy friendship base or faith community. And when you're trying to buck against maybe healthy things, they're helping to encourage you and pull you back in. But who we are in community with is of huge importance to our character and our overall health and happiness. We need to learn how to examine and expand our relationships. One of the most formative years in my life and my wife's life was uh, the year that we spent overseas in Palestine. So right next to Israel, we lived with Palestinians for a year. In that particular neighborhood, uh, was 70, 75% Muslim. And the rest of the community was Orthodox, Christian, or Catholic. Now, if we went 10 minutes this way, and we went past a huge concrete wall with barbed wire and machine guns uh, trying to keep Palestinians out, and we went and crossed through that, that boundary, or that, that, that barrier, we would get into Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was full of a J Jewish faiths of all expressions. But honestly, Jerusalem is a massively international city filled with people from every major world religion because they all kind of gather around the story and narrative of Abraham. Not every major religion, but the big Abrahamic religions. So there's a huge diversity of religious expression in Jerusalem and honestly in, in Bethlehem where we were living at the time. Now, I grew up in Right here, Shreveport Bossier. I grew up in a Baptist context, and, and I was told and, and taught growing up that, that all those people aren't in. They're outsiders. They're enemies of God might be a stretch or too strong of a word, um, including the, the Orthodox Christians and the Catholic Christians who had a longer tradition by thousands of years compared to my own. But we were told, hey, you guys are outsiders. You guys aren't in because you don't believe these certain things. But the year I spent as a neighbor to Muslims and, and to Orthodox Catholic and Jewish people and friends was hugely transformative because what I began to see is that these different people from different backgrounds exhibit and reflect the essence and nature of Jesus as much, if not more, than many of my Christian friends or Baptist friends, however you want to label that. Essentially, that these guys followed and honored Jesus in the way of Jesus in their own ways and their own expressions. That was hugely transformative for me. Because I began to shift from this idea that God is a very specific, you have to believe these certain things to get into the club kind of God, versus a God who saw beauty and goodness and, and, and diversity and saw it everywhere. It's a huge shift for me theologically and personally. And I began, to, in my opinion, to have a more holistic view of the kingdom of God. We need to learn to expand our relationships because it helps us to see the world from different perspectives than our own. This helps us grow into holistic and healthy people. We've been gifted with maybe the greatest technology tool of all time in the internet. We have instant access to people from all walks of life. We have the ability to learn from so many others who have different experiences than our own. It's a great, the internet can be a great gift and a great tool. Unfortunately, what I see happening in the past five or 10 years is it's actually just creating more silos. 
echo chambers, people that agree exactly with what you agree with, and you kind of stay in your tribe, and you, it creates a, a deeper forms of other, othering people and, and, and pushing them to the outside. So I challenge you, as you use the Internet as a tool, examine how does this impact the way you think about other people who think differently than you. Is it helping you create a, a more flexible perspective, uh, a more embracing perspective, or is it making you more rigid and more angry? The Internet can be a great tool for inclusivity. It's clear to me that Jesus was passionate about diversity. When we look at the people that he called to his inner circle, men and women, rich and poor, progressive, conservative, moderate, people that believed in, in, in strong conviction on the military, pacifists, like people from all across the spectrum, he, he brought them in together and, and, and asked them, what would it look like to be a community together that's, that's, that's bonding together for the common good of, of each other and the rest of humanity? Jesus was very intentionally inclusive in the forming of his first community. So examine your beliefs, but also expand your relationships. And the last thing I would say is, what does it look like to fully repent, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, to, to have a holistic approach to growth and health? I would say deal with your pain. We have to deal with our pain. One of the biggest obstacles to health is unprocessed pain. Richard Rohr, he's a Franciscan monk, has a lot of books, he's a really wise person. He says, we either transform our pain or we transmit it. We either transform our pain or we transmit it. And another way to say it is, hurting people hurt people. And if you're in a relationship with someone who's just constantly burning it down, and you can't understand, why would this person be so destructive? Most likely it's because they're really hurting inside. They have a lot of unprocessed pain and trauma from their past because hurting people hurt people. Now, I have like hundreds of anecdotal stories from my own life, but I'm not going to stay here all, all day and tell them to you. I'll just tell you guys one. <clears throat> Growing up, my, my grandfather was just a really mean guy. And if I wasn't giving a sermon and we were like at my house, I would use a lot of expletives probably to describe him. He was just mean. Like he was really smart. He was sharp, but he knew how to cut you. And he did, he did that with his kids. His kids are still dealing with kind of the wreckage of his cruelty. But growing up in that context, I could walk into the room when he was in it and notice this palpable tension, this kind of walking on eggshells and trying to, like, not say something or do something that would be embarrassing for yourself because he would call that out. And everyone in the room would kind of be tight and clenched up unless they drank enough alcohol to cope with it and unwind. Um, but what I noticed when I got out of that environment and just started being like an adult and being in other contexts is that if I was around someone that reminded me of my grandfather, if he looked like him or had the same accent or pacing and cadence of speech, dressed the same, whatever it might be, I would immediately notice this, this tension or this distrust of that person. I also developed this hypervigilance. If I was in a room where someone was, I felt someone was unsafe and felt like other people in the room were unsafe, I, I developed like a sixth sense. The problem with that is it like wasn't 100% accurate. <laughs> Sometimes I projected that, uh, that lack of safety because of my own wounding. That wound that I carried around impacted how I showed up in relationship with people. It impacted how I showed up as, as a staff person at a church or in a counseling session or whatever. It, it, it cost me a lot over the years, a lot maybe, maybe relative, but it cost me things over the years because it was undealt with pain. But as I've come to acknowledge that, I can now kind of step back in slow mo and say, oh, Tommy, you're clenching up. You, when you walked out of that meeting, like your forearms were sore because you were like gripping the, 
I'm always going to break this pulpit. You're like gripping the table, you know. Um, and I've learned to like slow down and step back and say, all right, am I feeling this way because it's actually unsafe? Or is this just past woundingness? If we want to grow in our health, we have to learn how to deal with our past wounds. One of the things that we, we tend to do is just avoid that. But when we avoid our pain, it just compounds it. We carry it with us, and we end up finding other ways to numb it or medicate it or, or get around it. And then those coping mechanisms, whether it's drugs, alcohol, whatever, become more destructive in our life than the original wound. And one thing I think that's common when we do the whack-a-mole with our behavior, we're like, all right, I, I got to quit smoking. Like, and we dedicate all our attention to quitting smoking without addressing why we were smoking in the first place, then we just end up replacing smoking with fried chicken or alcohol or whatever it might be. We, we just replace one coping mechanism with another and we stay in that woundedness. So we need to learn how to deal and address our wounds, our pain. John Steinbeck, the author John Steinbeck, has this great quote, I think it's beautiful, and he says, all of our vices are shortcuts to love. All of our vices are shortcuts to love. And if we could just like breathe that in and allow that idea that our the things that we pursue that end up being destructive are really just desperate attempts at love and connection, we can begin to have a lot more compassion for ourselves and compassion for other people. All of our vices are shortcuts to love. So the next few weeks, we're going to look at pride. We're going to look at envy. But this morning, I just want to remind you or encourage you, you can't outrun yourself. And if we want to look at why do I keep doing the same thing over and over again, it's not just focusing on the behavior, but it's digging deeper. Because it doesn't matter what you do to the sink if it's the pipes underneath that are the problem. Let's pray.